0: Hello and welcome to the Tech Disruptors podcast hosted by Bloomberg Intelligence. In this podcast series, we talk with CEOs and management teams about their views on disruption and how it's driving their decision-making and strategy. My name is Mandeep and with me today is Rob Lee, CTO of Pure Storage. Also joining is my colleague, woo Ho, who covers hardware and storage for Bloomberg Intelligence and will be co-hosting the podcast with me today. Rob, welcome to the podcast. Thanks.
1: Thanks for having me, Mandy.
0: So look, I mean, you guys have been public since 2015 and really back at that time, I did cover the IPO and one of the things that stood out to me was, uh, you know, there was this unique aspect about your technology, especially on the flash and SSD side and since then, you know, when I look at the trends, I mean cloud was probably in early stages and things have really taken off in terms of companies moving their workloads to clouds. And then we we're talking about AI and large language models now. So maybe, you know, just to level set, if you can talk about, you know, how pure storage has differentiated itself on the storage side and really how it it is exposed to trends that I just mentioned. Absolutely. It's a great question.
1: Mandy, you know, what I'd say is as a starting point, all of the points of Differentiate Differentiation you highlighted when you first started covering us in 2015 are core differentiators. If anything, those advantages that we've amassed and assembled really since the founding of the company have expanded with time and have really allowed us to not just play and disrupt in the high-performance tier one storage area, but really steadily grow the parts of the overall storage space we've been able to compete in over time you know, I think the second part of your question is, hey, if you step back and you look at the last, you know, five, eight years, you've had a lot of trends. Certainly we led with the disruption of flash into a disk based market. You've had cloud coming about. You've had certainly some dislocation around COVID. What are the puts and takes there and and how has that played out in, in Pure's favor? What I'd say is that one of the things that we've seen as a cap consultant throughout the last five to 10 years is a steady growth in demand for not just producing and storing data, but getting useful results out of that, right? And I think you saw various waves of that. I think you saw a resurgence of analytics attempts at that. You saw certainly the first wave of AI, a second resurgence, if you will, around generative AI technologies. And I think, you know, regardless of where people are looking at the cloud fitting into their IT plans, that's one concept we've seen play out over the years. And relative to cloud and some of the other trends we've seen. What we have really seen over the last several years, I think, is a a moderation of this idea of, hey, I'm going to move all of my workloads into the cloud, or I'm going to shift all of my applications in a certain direction, and really more of an appreciation that from IT leaders that they need to be, they should be focusing first and foremost on agility and flexibility, because they have to support multiple environments, multiple types of applications, multiple demands from the business. And I think that squarely plays to pure string.
0: Just if I can pause you over there. So like, is cloud more at the IAS layer for you or PaaS layer? And maybe if you can talk specifically about, you know, what you have done with Snowflake or anything else to call out in terms of your partnerships with any of these players.
1: When Pure thinks about the cloud, we really think about the cloud opportunity in three distinct categories, right? So there's selling on top of the cloud, right? The services and solutions that we provide for customers to run better. When they're running on top of cloud IAs, that would be more of a pass or IAS set of services. Then the set of solutions we provide customers to run better at a hybrid model where they may be utilizing the cloud for some services. They have perhaps a corpus of data on premise. Hey, how do I then go and put these two things together in the most sensible way? And then the third element of our cloud strategy is really powering the cloud, right? As we continue to refine and develop our core flash technology, as we're able to drive really industry efficiency and and power attributes and density from Flash. This is now putting us in a position to really go and market and sell our technology directly into the cloud providers. So we really look at each three of those layers. And as far as end customers, I think we see most of our enterprise customers really in those first two buckets, either looking to Pure to help them optimize their use of cloud IAs and powers or looking for Pure to provide solutions to better connect their on-premise data to cloud-based SaaS platform.
2: Hey, Rob, so why don't what, what we dig in a little bit deeper into your relationship with uh, Meta, right? If we look at January 2022, you made the announcement that Meta, or Meta made the announcement that they'll be using uh, FlashBlade as part of their AI cluster. Just curious on, on, on how you were selected and if there were any other, what differentiated you from any other storage vendor uh, to get you into the uh, the Meta AI cluster, given that AI is really hot right now?
1: So you're right, MetaMade first made that announcement in January of 22. That engagement actually with the AI cluster went back five or six years before that is when we first started working with them. And actually, if you uh, parse through the announcement they made in January, what you'll see is they were announcing a large AI production deployment of which we were serving a small portion with FlashBlade for direct AI training. But the larger portion we were actually serving on our FlashArray CQLC optimized product really for bulk data storage, right? And so the way to think about that is this engagement started, like I said, five, six years prior, where they had a group of uh, machine learning scientists. They had GPU servers. And what they found was that their slowest step in their process was the bottleneck to storage. So they engaged us at that time. FlashBlade allowed them to dramatically speed up that team's research and development. And then over the years, as that project gained traction and said, hey, you know, we're going to go make a production service out of this. They needed to scale that up significantly. And so that involved a much larger corpus of data. They needed a solution to go store that. And really the balance of concerns they were looking at, well, certainly some performance needs, certainly price is always an issue. But what they're looking, what really ultimately Switch tipped it in our favor was they also had significant power and footprint requirements. They literally had data centers that they had planned or they had built. They needed to fit a fairly large amount of storage into these data centers. And ours was really the only solution that they evaluated, which included building their own, by the way, that was able to meet that balance of price, performance, footprint, and energy and efficiency needs.
2: And and, and now was that the precursor to the Flashblade uh, S product that was announced at Accelerate?
1: Yeah. So the way to think about Flashblade S, it's really a generational step forward for the original Flashblade platform. If you go back to when we released or really launched Flashblade in 2016, it was Pure's first foray into building direct to Flash, right? Uh, we had pioneered the design of software, which was designed specifically to work with NAND Flash and its native capabilities. With FlashBlade, I would say expanded that intellectual property into hardware. Over time, we brought that that set of IP into the FlashArray platform in the form of direct Flash modules. And then with Flashlight S, we kind of brought that IP back together. So net-net, what we did with FlashBlade was we significantly increased on the performance of that platform, significantly increased the power efficiency by about 3x on both fronts. And more importantly, gave customers a lot more flexibility in how to configure that platform to both reach very, very high performance levels, but also very, very high capacities. And what we've since then done is introduced the FlashBlade e-platform based on the same architecture and the same software, now focusing on a much more price-sensitive market, which is going after that nearline disk. And again, it's that modularity of that FlashBlade platform that allows us to go and really configure a much more price-optimized version of that product to help customers replace the remaining low-cost disk that are in those states.
0: So every episode we do, Rob, we try to ask an addressable market question. So I'm going to frame it slightly differently here because when we look at you know, all the forecasts out there, people, depending on where they're coming from, they'll say the amount of data, whether it's structured or unstructured, will double every two to three years. And so if you think about the world that way, how would you characterize your addressable market Given, you know, things are moving from hard disk towards flash and uh, SSDs, I mean, would you be one of the direct beneficiaries of that trend or there is a different way to think about it?
1: No, I think that's absolutely the way to think about it. And I think not only would we be one of the direct beneficiaries of that trend, I think the large portions of the existing disk market where we are going to be the only players for quite some time playing in Flash. And so if we think about the overall storage landscape, I think there's a couple motions that you see pure really executing. So if you look at the existing enterprise storage market, there's a portion that is well penetrated in Flash. And then there's a set of workloads that really aren't very well penetrated today. In that first set, it's really about share capture, right? It's really about share gains. We have a better product set, better set of services and solutions. And it's really about going and addressing those customers' needs In the portions of the enterprise storage market that today aren't being well served with Flash, I think we have very, very differentiated offerings to go and accelerate the transition of those parts of the market. And so if you look at that, generally gets you to, depending on kind of how you slice and dice, it generally gets you to about 48, 50 billion in an addressable market. And then you look at what we're doing, Flash Blade E, right? Which is really going after a lot of the nearline disk based markets. And a lot of that really isn't currently being captured, isn't currently being counted when folks, industry analysts, look at the enterprise storage market. And I think we're squarely going after a large incremental chunk there as we continue to execute on our flash and density roadmap in time. So if you net this out, right, we're playing for a very large opportunity. And even in the enterprise storage space that we plan today, we're still a minority shareholder. And just so to piggyback on that. So when it comes to how you are working with the hyperscalers, would it be fair to say that Your focus is more on enterprise customers, and you're going to let the hyperscalers kind of focus on the small and mid-sized businesses, or you are going across the customer base when it comes to the addressable market. Well, certainly we've had a focus, an increasing focus on targeting the enterprise customer segment. That said, the commercial segment continues to be a very strong one for us, and you saw that in the Q4 and the FY23 print. And so really, from our point of view, it's an ands, not an or now, when we look at, hey, how are customers considering pure versus the hyperscalers or both, right? I think that's where we see a lot more recognition of from our enterprise customers of what types of workloads make sense for them to run on-prem and make sense for them to continue to, to run and manage and what other types of workloads make perhaps make sense to put in the cloud. I will say that the recent macro environment and budget tightening that we see across the board certainly has put a lot more focus from the CFOs on, hey, so what are my cloud costs? Like how much am I spend in the cloud? And I think that that's causing a lot of folks to really reconsider decisions that perhaps seemed a bit more clear cut three, four five years ago.
0: So you are seeing a pullback or longer sales cycle when it comes to deciding and deciding on storage spend uh, right now?
1: To a degree, and I'm happy to talk about that, but actually was referring specifically to more specifically to heightened sensitivity from customers on their cloud costs. And I think that that is now a potentially a bit of a tailwind for pure as Folks are evaluating, hey, what's my actual true cost of ownership here, not just one. Am I paying, you know, per hour, per day, per month?
0: The reason I ask is when everyone talks about AI and large language models, they keep talking about accelerators and GPUs, but no one really mentions the storage requirements. And from my perspective, I'm curious to hear from you, is storage, you know, flash storage really that critical when you are trying to deploy large language models or can you do it on your existing storage infrastructure? What I'd say is
1: this is clearly an evolving space, right? If we look at who are the folks that are actually developing the ll, the large language models, there's a few big players. If I step back and I look at AI as a whole, right? If I just really, really oversimplify it, the name of the game is who can most effectively assemble a large, very, very large set of data at, throw it at GPUs many, many times, iterate, crane, refine, and iterate again, and who can do that most effect? There's a lot of elements and moving pieces to that, but you know, the two that I'd call out that are really constants are, you need a lot of data and you need to be able to get access to it and provide the GPS access to it a lot. So where does that lead you? Well, you need a cost-effective way to store it and you need a cost-effective and performant way to access it, right? And so certainly flash and performance helps in access to the data. But I'll also point out that if you look at how a lot of the pricing models work in the public cloud for IAS customers find that they're paying for access, they're paying for API call, they're paying per data transfer. And so if you think about, you know yourself as an AI practitioner, if your whole goal is to optimize how much you can provide data into GPUs, do you really want to set yourself up on a pricing model that completely upside down for that? And so I think we see people definitely having that recognition. And I think it's a large part of the reason Pure typically does not see large AI customers running in the cloud.
2: So, Rob, I just want to circle back to a couple of things. You said a couple of interesting things. You've been uh, talking about FlashBlade E as well as also uh, enterprise customers rethinking their cloud costs. Let's first talk about FlashBlade E, right, in terms of nearline storage, which is, I think, when I last checked IDC, is about a $12 billion HDD opportunity that you can go after. Uh, Could you just walk us through the economics? Because everything that I've been reading about FlashBlade E says it's the death of the hard disk drive storage array. So, so this sounds like a really, really exciting announcement that you guys are, are, are making and can really disrupt hard disk distru- HD uh, storage rates. So, just walk us through the economics.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, the way to the way to think about it is, we've built and priced Flashlight E at a price point that is at par. We believe with competitive nearline disk based systems, day one cost for a customer to buy Flashlight E versus a nearline disk alternative, basically at par on acquisition cost. Now, you look at day two costs you look at your significant savings in footprint right we take up about a fifth the space of nearline alternatives probably about a tenth of systems that we're replacing same thing with energy usage same thing with labor right you look at the significant reliability benefits were 20 to 30 times more reliable than the nearline disk based systems uh, we're replacing and you net all that out and the benefits you know are cleared so then the question becomes okay so how is it you're able to do this, right? Because we know that flash is declining in cost, but we also know that bid for bid flash is still, you know, more expensive uh, than disk. What it really comes down to is the whole system economics, right? People in the industry often focus on the media itself, flash versus disk. What they typically ignore is the cost of everything else that goes around it. And so if you look at uh, a disk-based system in your line, disk-based system, it's not atypical that the cost of all the sheet metal around, you know, the sheet metal, the power supplies, all the stuff that goes around, the disks you put into the system cost just as much as the disks themselves. And so our ability with our technology to build much denser packages of, of flash still drive reliability performance and surround it with a much more efficient cost structure significantly allows us to to narrow that, that cost differential. And that's really at the end of the day, uh, that's our secret sauce, right, is our direct flash technology, which gives us that leg up over the disk vendors gives us that leg up uh, over the SSD vendors. And that's why you know, we believe that nobody um, else in the market is going to be able to follow us for some time as customers find that they're paying for access, they're paying for API call, they're paying per data transfer. And so if you think about, you know yourself as an AI practitioner, if your whole goal is to optimize how much you can provide data into GPUs, do you really want to set yourself up on a pricing model that completely upside down for that? And so I think we see people definitely having that recognition. And I think it's a large part of the reason Pure typically does not see large AI customers running in the cloud.
2: Okay, so so when, when the product was announced to you, there was a 20 cent per gigabyte uh, raw data cost. I, I'm assuming that that actually can come down. You know, some figures that I read, if you, if you do compress and dedupe, the economics potentially gets better. And that's without the power savings, I'm assuming, right?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. So that 20 cent a gigabyte, it is not factoring benefits of deduplication or compressions. So you're right. If the data is reducible, it's that much more compelling for a customer and it doesn't factor in any of the operational costs. So you're right. That can get, I would actually go one step further and say it'll get better. Right. So as we continue to build denser systems and denser drives, we can drive the price point, the economics down even further. Right. Because again, the more flash we can ship by surrounding it with the Lee, you know, the least amount of additional stuff reduces A number of things. It reduces the uh, certainly cost structure. It reduces the space and footprint. It reduces the energy and power utilization. It also increases the relief. And so, this is an area we're going to continue to lean into uh, because we think we're just getting started.
2: And and when I think about nearline storage, you know, in FlashBlade E, it's more of a cloud product more so than an enterprise product. But it also sounds. I mean, am I wrong here? When when I think about nearline, I think about you know mass capacity cloud guys using cold storage and flash could be a potential option, but it's mainly HDD right now.
1: You know, I think if you look at the total amount of nearline disk that's shipped, certainly the lion's share goes into the hyperscalers. So that's a huge opportunity. But I think if you just look at the enterprise, there's a very significant opportunity set there as well. You know, I think if you are sizing that out and, you know, one way to look at it is how much nearline disk has shipped in a year. If you look at you know Seagate at Western Dig you look at the couple suppliers you'll get to a number at about about 1000 exabytes a year you know if you take out all the stuff that goes into your home video servers and other stuff which really isn't that relevant you know that you'll you'll end up with call it high single digit hundreds of you know 800 900 uh exabytes a year good portion of that goes into the cloud but a very healthy portion of that uh ends up in the enterprise as well and so certainly uh you know we believe our our first opportunity set uh, is likely to be in the enterprise but I think over time we we get to address all of those buckets as well.
2: Got it. And then just just to quickly shift gears here, you were talking about cloud well, cloud economics relative to the enterprise. For me, multi cloud is one of the bigger themes that I'm pursuing right now, and actually fits into the hybrid cloud multi cloud dynamics since you play on both ends. And and I'm just I'm just curious, you know, how does pure really fit into the repatriation of cloud data back into the enterprise? And back and forth and how, how do you minimize the storage on both ends because i'm sure they're looking at enterprise customers are looking at the economics on the overall storage rather than having one end versus the other
1: you know i'd say it depends a bit on on the workload but if we step back and we just kind of look at the the bigger picture drivers you know i think when customers look at hybrid or multi-cloud you know typically they're they're looking to your point, optionality and where they're running applications. They don't want to duplicate the data. They don't want to do it for cost reasons. They don't want to do it for security and compliance and a whole host of other reasons. And so then that naturally leads people down a, a path of, okay, so if, if I don't want to duplicate all the data, but I still want, you know, optionality in, in terms of where I'm running, what's the best architecture for that? How do I best set myself up uh, to do that? And I think what we're seeing is, you know, more of a evolving, uh, uh, understanding that, hey, you know, storing data on premise or, or perhaps in a co-location facility that's on, uh, you know, network backbones uh, such as Equinix is a very uh, viable solution that gives me access to move that data into the cloud or process it in in the cloud as needed. It also gives me uh, tighter control over, you know, all the compliance and regulatory and security elements. So I think that, you know, that's something that people are looking at quite a bit. I think the other thing that people are Really understanding is, hey, how do I build my applications? How do I set up my infrastructure for the greatest amount of flexibility? And so that's where you know folks that are building cloud native applications on containers are looking to Portworx to provide that. Right, understanding that I'm choosing containers because this is a a technology set that allows me to design for on-prem, run an AWS, run an Azure, run GCP without having to duplicate my software efforts. While naturally I don't want to tie myself to one storage solution. How do I get a cloud agnostic storage layer? That's exactly what Portworx solves for.
2: Well, but I've got to think we're still in a very native, you know, uh, nascent stages of that, right? In terms of where uh, enterprise architectures are, right?
1: For sure. Yeah, I think we will be for some time. I mean, it's, you know, I think you you see a set of applications that were built in a more, call it traditional architecture. Those will exist for a long, long time. Uh, but then you've got a set of new applications that are being built. And, you know, and and I think it is going to be a secular transit. If I look at how, you know, engineers are trained fresh out of school today, very different than how I was trained 25 years ago. Right. And so when you look at the folks that, you know, the tool sets, they're trained on what they're used to. These are the folks that really for the last five years that are going to be setting and the design decisions and architectures for software for the next five, 10, 15 years. When you look at a demographic shift like that, when you look at a training shift like that, that's what, you know, it's going to be a secular transition, but you also know it'll take
0: That's fair. Yeah. I mean, talking about demographic and training shifts, maybe you can talk about how your refresh cycle has changed because of all this advancement in technology. You just mentioned about, you know, a totally new paradigm when it comes to containers and Kubernetes. So how has that affected your refresh rates at enterprises and how will something like an LLM uh, impact those refresh rates going forward?
1: So, you know, it's it's interesting because, uh, as you know, with Pure's Evergreen uh, subscription, we don't really have, we don't really take customers through a traditional refresh cycle, as is typical with really every other part of enterprise. It, that's been a, a significant benefit uh, for us. As you know, once a customer's on Pure, we're constantly modernizing, constantly uh, helping them evolve and grow that footprint. So that really, it never comes up for refresher or explicit refresher rebid. That's been, you know, certainly a, a huge uh, source of stickiness and retention and And growth for us and especially you know in the subscription side of the business now you know i think the the real question you're saying you're you're kind of getting at is hey so a lot of new technology how is it affecting you know how customers are evolving their infrastructure deployments and what i'd say is that again it's it's a bit of an and not an or right because the you know the traditional applications that we started serving the back office applications databases vmware that stuff's going to be around for a long time, right? And it's still growing at its healthy rate. I think what you are seeing is new applications are being built on different technology stacks. And I think it's affecting customers at planning in two ways. One is they're looking for a lot more flexibility and optionality. And we see that in, you know, the uptake of some of our software solutions. We see that in the uptake of our Evergreen One subscription. You know, the second way that we we see that is, you know, we are, well, I guess it comes back to Evergreen One again. It You know, we, we see customers... Um, that are really trying to position themselves to be able to meet uh, a variety of needs without having to do a lot of upfront planning because they've got uh, software stacks, they've got parts of their infrastructure that are evolving uh, behind different drivers.
0: So how much is subscriptions as a percent of your overall business?
1: So if we look at where we finished the last quarter, it was about 35%, you know, it's a percentage of revenue. And I think what we really look at there as a, a barometer is our subscription AR growth rate, right? Because again, to the degree that, you know, we land another hyperscaler or we outperform on the product side, the ratio of subscription to products, you know, can, can move. Uh, What we really focus on is driving consistent high growth uh, in the subscriptions portfolio. And that, that kind of takes us to the uh, longer term target we've laid out uh, around 30%.
0: Is it more of a consumption type of model, depending on how much data or number of workloads that are using that storage? Like how, how does that grow?
3: All your subscriptions, if we step back, three main components to it. One is our core Evergreen subscriptions, uh, which are generally attached to uh, a product sale. Uh, the second is uh, our Evergreen One subscription, which is purely consumption basis, uh, where a customer doesn't procure the hardware, uh, we're just transacting with them on a, on SLA or service level agreement basis. And then the third component to a lesser extent uh, would be Portworx and the Portworx software subscription. Now, if we look at the first two of Evergreen, uh, really, it's based on the same fundamental uh, architecture and principles of once a customer on pure technology, they never have to worry about being obsoleted. They're always kept uh, you know, up to date and modernized. And basically, they never have to confront a refresh. We can deliver that to customers through uh, a variety of experiences or a variety of subscriptions. The base level subscription, as I mentioned, they buy the hardware and then the subscription can attach. Uh, gives them the, you know, access to, to uh, software updates, to modernized hardware, uh, and the roadmap that basically never never leaves them uh, disrupted or out of date. And then with the Evergreen One full as a service subscription, uh, they don't buy the hardware up front even, they just kind of say, hey, this is how much I need, this is how much performance, and then Pure signs up to provide that SLA. And so in this, you know, environment where customers uh, are placing a premium on cash conservation, they are placing a premium on optionality, uh, we're seeing a lot more uh, interest and uptake on that consumption-based subscription model.
2: So so why don't I dig in on that uh, really quickly? Because I I, I do think that in a more cautious uh, IT spending environment, this subscription model could be fairly attractive. The Evergreen shoot could be fairly attractive to someone who wants to try some of your newer products, whether it's Portworx, whether it's uh, Flashblady. Is that the case? I mean, does this give you a, a potential foot in the door? To customers who were interested in you and then they can have a uh, take you on as a as a piecemeal deployment
3: oh absolutely you know and i think if we saw it in the last couple of quarters certainly the overall spending environment got a bit more cautious we saw you know increased interest and uptake in our our consumption-based evergreen subscription we also saw it in the early quarters of covid right when uh, you know, certainly companies were suddenly pulling back and suddenly a lot more uh, cautious. I think we saw a lot more shift into every one. And again, recognition that, hey, this is a model that as a customer gives me uh, ultimate flexibility and optionality essentially, you know, offloading some risk onto Pure. Now, on the other hand, for Pure, mm-hmm. right, because we have a very, very good understanding of, of those footprints, we have very good models based on our years and years of runtime experience to know how those systems are going to grow, uh, we can go and deliver that service very, very efficiently. So it's a very, very nice one, uh, win-win, uh, but certainly I think you, you're uh, on the right track. In this type of environment, we're seeing greater uptake and, and recognition benefit.
2: I just get a sense that some of your uh, larger competitors are playing not only catch up on technology, but also on the, on the business model itself.
0: Okay. Uh, so I'm going to pivot to a rapid fire section where we try to squeeze as much as we can. We want to cover, you know, a lot of ground, but we obviously have so much time, so uh, you can keep your answers brief here. I'm going to go with a few questions here. So is distributed databases, one of the most prominent workloads that you're supporting? I wouldn't say it's one of the most
3: prominent. Um, they're there, uh, they're growing, but I think it's still a relatively small workload type.
0: So w- which one would be that category of workloads which is among the most prominent for you? So
3: certainly business applications, um, you know, your traditional, uh, you know, Oracle, SQL, VMware, 10 business applications, backup and restore, rapid restore, medical systems and medical imaging, whether it's uh, EHR, EMR, uh, PACS type systems, the broader set of analytics and AI. And I'd also call out technical computing. So folks building chips, hardware, planes, trains, automobiles, quant trading algorithms, all require a lot of uh, very similar uh, uh, types of
0: storage. 70% gross margin for a storage company. Do you think it's sustainable for an industry like yours over the long term?
3: Well, I think 70% gross margins are are too high for a commodity business, but we're not in a commodity business. So there are some of our competitors might be playing that way. You know, we we are playing an innovation game, right? We uh, are highly differentiated. A- and I think the gross margins and, and really the value we command, right? You know, are representative of that.
0: So how do you think investors perceive your moat? One is our flash
3: technology and leadership. Um, and, I, and I think certainly with the release of E. Well, C then E. I think uh, investors understand that and it's very visible. I think the other mode we have is Evergreen, our, between our core subscriptions and Evergreen 1. And I think that's a, a little bit less uh, well understood, but you know we'll, we'll seek to change that over the coming quarters and years. Any misconceptions
0: about Pure that you want to clear on this podcast?
3: Well, you know, I think we got to one earlier, right, which is, um, hey, you know, are you just playing a, a commodity game in the same old storage industry? And, you know, there's a common misconception that we don't have a differentiated offering uh, or, or solution set. And and I think we've shown that over time as we've expanded, uh, as we've expanded the enterprise. And, you know, we're just going to keep proving it uh, out in the street. What is the most important metric of your business success? You know, I would say market share, right? We're very, very focused on continued market share capture. We've had a pretty long track record of uh, that going back eight, nine years, and we're not gonna stop.
0: What is one technology or trend that you are most excited about over the next two years?
3: I do think, I do think that flash uh, and what we're doing with it is, is uh, at a absolute tipping point. If you look at where disk was 15 years ago, it was on an exponential tier, or maybe 25 years ago, it was on an exponential tear. We're gonna take flash into the same place. And so I think that, that's actually pretty exciting to be on the, uh, the, the knee of the exponential curve. What about CXL? I mean, isn't that just yeah. for the hyperscalers? So CXL, CXL is exciting. I think it's going to take several years to play out. Nope. Just going to take three, four, five years. And then it's going to take a bunch of years for the software guys to, to really take advantage of it. But net net, it's constructive for us, right? It's, the name of the game is all about how do you get more data into the effective okay, processing uh, faster. Uh, removing all the other bottlenecks in front of us can only help. So uh, we are definitely watching that, and I think that will help us.
0: Last couple from me. So what are assumptions are you making about your business that could go wrong?
3: You know, I think we're, you know, certainly navigating the same macro environment that everyone else is. And, you know, we're not assuming things get terribly worse. We're not assuming things get terribly better in the near term, but there's still a lot of uncertainty out there. I think that's, you know, I think that's the biggest one. We look internally and we've really focused on thoughtful investment, but also really making sure that we're firing on, on cylinders operationally. So, you know, if you ask me, I think our biggest risks are, are really exogenous and you do what you can on those.
0: And so last one, related one, how much visibility do you have about your business right now? I would
3: say we have very good visibility. Our visibility hasn't changed. I think we provided some commentary in the Q4 uh, earnings tall, just about, as we look into the, the next fiscal year, and one of the things we are seeing is a, a little bit of a slower development of early stage opportunities. Uh, and so I think, you know, I characterize it as visibility is good, but, but predictability has taken a, a bit of a, a step back. And so, you know, we've reflected that in our initial guidance for the year. And uh, we'll be working that as we go out and go throughout the year. But, you know, we've also got E coming on board with the back half, which, you know, we think is, uh, you know, going to be very meaningful. Uh, we've got a tremendous amount of sales capacity that we've ramped in the back half of last year, as you recall. Last year, Q1, Q2, uh, we were a little bit behind uh, where we wanted to be in terms of quota bearing heads. And so as we get to the back half of this year, we're going to have a lot more sale capacity ramps. And then the third part is, you know, I think some of the, you know, some of the elements of, hey, how are customers uh, valuing optionality? How are they valuing, uh, you know, the financial elements of their buying decision as we better educate our field Uh, this year?
0: I think those will
3: come into play as well.
0: Right. Thank you so much, Rob. This was wonderful. Really appreciate your time and wish you all the best and, uh, you know, success going forward. And that concludes our podcast. Thank you all for joining.